Welcome to lecture 16, part one. Let's continue on with our discussion in chapter eight on skeletal muscle function. So we ended lecture 15 by talking about these two structures in a muscle fiber, and that are the T-tubules and the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And figure 819 in the book on page uh, 258 is a reasonably good illustration of these two specialized membrane structures. And in this figure then they're showing the sarcoplasmic reticular membranes in green and they're showing two uh, T-tubules, right? One here and one here. And between a pair of T-tubules, there is uh, the, an individual sarcoplasmic reticulum. And where the lateral sacs, which are identified here, right, the lateral sacs are the more well-developed ends of the sarcoplasmic reticulum, where the lateral sacs from two adjacent sarcoplasmic reticuli meet a T-tubule is what's called the triad junction. And it's critically at these points where the lateral sacs come in close opposition to a T-tubule that is critical for uh, the process of excitation-contraction coupling. And that is where electrical excitation of the T-tubule membrane, because an action potential propagates down it, leads to calcium release from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And most of that comes out of the lateral sacs of the SR to then initiate contraction. And a nice thing about this figure is that they're also showing the relationship of the T-tubule and the SR to the individual myofibrils within the cell. All right, so they're highlighting here three myofibrils and how the sarcoplasmic reticula and the T-tubules surround the myofibrils. And so you can look at them as kind of being sandwiched in between the myofibrils. All right, so then the question now becomes, oh, sorry, I forgot. I brought in this electron micrograph picture. And this is a scanning electron uh, microscope picture of the surface of a skeletal muscle fiber. And it's simply, I brought this in here to show you uh, how these T-tubule membranes were first identified through these uh, micrographs. So if you're looking at the surface, plasma membrane surface of the muscle fiber, it was found that these small, what looked to be holes in the membrane appeared, and these arrows are highlighting these individual holes. They can kind of look like bumps, but in fact they are the invaginations of the plasma membrane that are the T-tubules that penetrate towards the interior of the muscle fiber. So those are the what the T-tubule membranes look like from the surface of the muscle fiber.
And you can see that these, there's a bunch of them that sort of cluster together around this region, right? So there's a cluster of T-tubules. And then in these intervening regions, there's a largely absent here to here. And then there's another cluster of T-tubules that occur. So these T-tubules come in regularly spaced clusters along the length of a muscle fiber. Okay, so the question now becomes how does an action potential, which is the electrical excitation, on the T-tubule lead to SR calcium release to induce contraction. Because these are two separate membranes. T-tubule membrane is continuous with the plasma membrane, but the sarcoplasmic reticular membrane is not continuous with the plasma membrane. So to illustrate this better, uh, what I want to do is we're going to come up here just to give you an idea of what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this area of the muscle fiber and we're going to magnify it up to look at it more closely. All right, so this is going to represent the beginning of a T-tubule as it invaginates. All right, so this is the surface of the muscle fiber plasma membrane surface here. And then it invaginates down, and so this is the actual T-tubule. here, right, and within the T-tubule then is interstitial fluid, right, it's continuous, now let's draw, a, I'm not going to draw both lateral sacs of an SR, that will draw one, and I'll use a green color for this. So let's say here's the SR lateral sac. All right, so this would be part of the SR. I'm not gonna draw the whole thing since we're magnifying the view. Then just to keep our compartment straight then, here's the cytoplasm, right? And this is the SR lumen in here, which contains high quantities of calcium that are stored. 
Um, this T tubule obviously it continues on as does the SR through the cell. So this continues on. The SR lateral sac continues on. So this is part of the triad junction. Now, critically, the T-tubule, as I said, it contains voltage-gated sodium and potassium channels. So ac when an action potential occurs, uh, right, you have sodium influx through voltage-gated sodium channels, and then that propagates along the T-tubule and down the T-tubule membrane and uh, so the action potential propagates, right, down the T-tubule. So here's our action potential. And this is our depolar depolarizing current. But the T-tubule also contains an additional protein, and I'm going to show these as some simple rectangles here. that occur, these are membrane proteins on the T-tubule, and these are gonna be on both sides. Oops. So we have two proteins involved in the excitation contraction coupling process. And by that I mean in SR calcium release. In response to an action potential. All right, that is the coupling process. So the first of these proteins is what's called the dihydropyridine receptor. And that's what these rectangles that I'm drawing on the T-tubule membrane. Dihydropyridine receptor. We'll abbreviate this as the DHPR. So this is a T-tubule membrane protein. And Sherwood calls this effectively that it functions as a voltage sensor. And the reason is because it's, what she means by this is that the conformation, that's just another fancy word for saying the shape of the protein. I'm being sloppy. is affected 
by the magnitude of the plasma membrane potential. That's how it functions as a voltage sensor. And in fact, the dihydropyridine receptor is a voltage-gated calcium channel. All right, so it's got a critical threshold potential that triggers the channel to open. And that effectively is what alters its conformation or shape. But in skeletal muscle, specifically, the dihydropyridine receptor does not function as a voltage-gated calcium channels. So instead of calling this protein what it is, which is a voltage-gated calcium channel, she calls it a dihydropyridine receptor. And the name dihydropyridine just comes, again, it's based upon uh, the pharmacology of this particular protein, where it happens to bind to this class of drugs that are called the dihydropyridines. So they call it the dihydropyridine receptor. So it's a voltage-gated calcium channel, but it doesn't function as such in muscle fibers. And the question is, well, why not? All right, so to answer this question, we have to bring in another protein. And this is a protein that's found on the, particularly in the lateral sac membrane of the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And remember, this... is the lateral sac region of the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So I'm gonna use the purple to draw this other protein. So there's a protein that is an integral membrane protein on the SR, and it's quite a large protein that protrudes out from the membrane of the lateral sac, and it actually contacts the dihydropyridine receptor. And so you see this at regular intervals along between the T-tubule and the lateral sac membrane. See this protrusion of this protein that comes out and makes contact with the dihydropyridine receptor. Now, the second protein then is known as the ryanidine receptor. So this is a membrane protein primarily localized to the SR lateral sac. So there's about twice as many 
Oh, and by the way, since I don't want to have to keep writing ranidine receptor, I'm going to abbreviate this as RYR for ranidine receptor. There are about twice as many ranidine receptors on the lateral sac as there are dihydropyridine receptors on the T-tubule membrane. So about half of the ranidine receptors uh, make physical contact with the dihydropyridine receptors on the T-tubules. And that's what I've drawn then up here. I'm showing you half of the ranidine receptors that are in contact. Here's our ranidine receptors. And here are our dihydropyridine receptors. making contact with those. Now, since I said that there's twice as many ranidine receptors, there's another group of ranidine receptors that protrude out but don't make contact with the dihydropyridine receptors. So we'll draw an additional set of these here. Now, critically, the ranidine receptors in fact function as calcium channels. So these are SR lateral sac calcium channels. Now, some of these that are, well, all of those that are in contact with the dihydropyridine receptors are triggered to open when those dihydropyridine receptors change shape. as the T-tubule depolarizes. When an action potential propagates down it. All right, so the critical feature here is that because these ranidine receptors are in contact with the dihydropyridine receptors, and the shape of the dihydropyridine receptor is altered in response to an action potential, that change in shape of the dihydropyridine receptor triggers a change in shape of the ranidine receptor, which causes the channel activity of the ranidine receptor to open. So effectively, what this means is that the ranidine receptor, you can view it, at least those uh, in contact with the dihydropyridine receptors,
are effectively um, mechanically gated calcium channels. Right? I call them mechanically gated because they are triggered to open by a change in conformation uh, due to the change in conformation of the dihydropyridine receptors. So you can look at that as a mechanical coupling between these two that triggers the opening of these ranidine receptors. So coming back up here then to our drawing, action potential propagates down. Here's our depolarizing action potential. And as it passes down the T-tubule, it causes a conformational change in the dihydropyridine receptors, which then uh, induces a conformational change in the ranidine receptor that, that it's connected to. That opens the channel activity and it allows calcium to come out from the lumen of the SR into the cytoplasmic space. And this is where the excitation contraction coupling process is fundamentally, um, or the basis for that excitation contraction coupling fundamentally occurs through this interaction between these two different proteins. Right, so that's uh, mechanically gated ranidine receptors due to their coupling with the dihydropyridine receptors. And the calcium that comes out here then, right, it diffuses out in this small space and calcium enters the sarcomeres within the surrounding myofibrils and binds to the troponin. So this is where the increase in calcium concentration comes from, this coupling process. All right, because the ranidine receptors that are in contact with the dihydropyridine receptors are activated by this shape change in the dihydropyridine receptors. The process of activation is called conformational coupling. It's typically the designation for this. I don't, not, don't think that Sherwood actually uses this term in the book in chapter eight, but many textbooks call this conformational coupling. And that simply refers to the activation of the ranidine receptors because of the conformational change induced in those receptors by the conformational changes in the dihydropyridine receptors as a result of depolarization of the T-tubule membrane. <laughs> so that's conformational coupling. Now, there is the issue of the other half of the ranidine receptors that aren't in contact 
with the dihydropyridine receptors. And it turns out that uh, these ranidine receptors can be activated to open, but by different means. So ranidine receptors have a calcium binding site, so they can bind calcium. And it turns out that when they bind a calcium ion, that can also trigger opening of the calcium channel activity. So, triggers the ranidine receptor calcium channel to open, and this is going to release more calcium from the SR. All right, so the calcium that comes out of the SR is not just through the conformational coupling process. Now, that's... The conformational coupling process is what initiates the calcium release, but what can add to that release is um, the calcium which comes out, which can then bind to this other population of ranidine receptors, which activates those as well to trigger more calcium release. So that's how these two different populations of ranidine receptors are activated. Then you can view this other population of ranidine receptors as effectively chemically gated calcium channels instead of mechanically gated. They're, the chemical that gates them is calcium itself. So let me bring in a figure from a book here. Okay, this is figure 810 in the book. on page 259. And it really is an illustration of the dihydropyridine receptor, ryanidine receptor conformational coupling process. All right, so over here on the left-hand side then, they're showing an individual T-tubule and the closely opposed uh, SR lateral sac. And the focus would be on this one here. So the T-tubule is highlighted in pink 
right? So that's this membrane here. They're just showing, showing a section of it. And they're highlighting the dihydropyridine receptor proteins in blue that are embedded within the T-tubule membrane. All right, so here they're showing uh, one, two, three, four, and five different uh, dihydropyridine receptor proteins. Now, the green then below it in B is highlighting the ryanidine receptors, which are these guys in yellow. So here are ryanidine receptors. In this figure, Sherwood is calling them a foot protein, but she also right, refers to them as a ranidine receptor here. These were initially called foot proteins simply because the proteins are quite large and they stick out from the uh, SR membrane relatively far because they're so big and they look like little feet uh, projections out of the membrane. Now, if you notice on the SR lateral, lateral sac, they're showing 10 of these ranidine receptors, twice as many as the dihydropyridine receptors, right? So the density of these is about twice as high as the dihydropyridine. Now, you put these two membranes together, and that's what's shown here on the right, and then they're illustrating how the half of the ryanidine receptors are now physically bound to the dihydropyridine receptors on the T-tubule. And it is that physical coupling that initiates calcium release in response to an action potential occurring. All right, so that's an illustration of this dihydropyridine receptor, ryanidine receptor process that is crucial for triggering calcium release to induce contraction. Now, then we know that one action potential on the muscle fiber then induces conformational coupling between the ryanidine receptors and the dihydropyridine receptors, which then leads to calcium release from the SR, which then leads to contraction through the power stroke cycling process. Now, then the issue becomes, well, okay, we know how contraction is initiated, and as long as the concentration of cytoplasmic calcium is high, right, because of that calcium release, then contraction will continue. But then what causes a contraction to end? Once it starts, then what stops it? And you can guess, right, this is going to be uh, a decrease in the concentration of cytoplasmic calcium 
back to the unstimulated levels. Which it, you remember is about 0 0.0005 millimolar. And what is it that causes this decrease in calcium? Well, there's a protein on the sarcoplasmic reticulum, and it's not only on the lateral sac, but it's on uniformly distributed throughout the SR membrane, known as the sarcoplasmic endoplasmic reticulum calcium ATPase. Or for short, it's abbreviated as circa. Sarcoplasmic endoplasmic reticulum calcium ATPase. And as the name implies, this is a primary active transporter. splits ATP and that drives the active reuptake of calcium into the lumen of the SR. To transport calcium against its favorable gradient back into the SR lumen from the cytoplasm. So circuit activity then causes a decrease. So this causes a decrease in the cytoplasmic calcium, which will then lead to uh, dissociation of calcium from troponin, right, as the concentration of calcium drops, then calcium is going to dissociate from the troponin, and then we get the troponin inactivation. And when it becomes inactive, the tropomyosin moves back to block the actin sites. So now the myosin heads can't, can no longer come up and bind to the thin filament actins. And then that causes the end of the contraction. All right, so if we put these elements together then, one action potential induces Conformational coupling, which causes ranidine receptor activation, SR calcium release, an increase in the concentration of cytoplasmic calcium. And really, this is a two things happen at this point. This leads to 
activation of troponin through binding calcium. So this is active activation of troponin, which then leads to tropomyosin movement. We have now exposed actin sites. And that's going to cause power stroke cycling. Which gives us contraction. But at the same time, as the calcium level goes up in the cytoplasm, this is going to trigger an increase in circa activity. Right? The more the calcium is available in the cytoplasm, the higher the activity of this protein. And that's going to result in SR calcium reuptake. So both of these things happen simultaneously, the process of calcium reuptake as well as contraction. And we know that the calcium reuptake is going to lower, right? It's going to lower that increased calcium brought about by the calcium release. All right, so here's the whole thing, putting it together from electrical excitation to the conformational coupling process between the T-tubule and SR membranes through the ranidine receptor, dihydropyridine receptor interaction, to calcium release, to activation of power stroke cycling and contraction, as well as then the reuptake of calcium. But it turns out that, as you might suspect, that the calcium reuptake process is quite slow compared to the um, troponin activation. And power stroke cycling. So it takes quite a bit longer for the calcium to be taken back up compared to the actual activation and power stroke cycling. And I mean, obviously that's important because if, if the circa activity was a lot higher, then uh, there would be no chance or very little chance for contraction to occur. Now, this is going, we're almost out of time here for the first part of this lecture. So what we're gonna start on in part two is we're going to look at the relationship between this process here uh, particularly out here in the uh, time of contraction versus the duration of the action potential. So we're going to look at the time of an action potential versus the ensuing contraction. And that difference in the time between these is 
actually really important in understanding how variations in force of contraction can come about. All right, we are now on part two of lecture 16. So I brought in here figure 811 in the book on page 260. I'm not gonna go over it, but since I've just basically gone through everything that this figure points out, but it's a nice summary of what we just talked about from the process of electrical excitation of a muscle fiber at the neuromuscular junction, uh, then leading to calcium release from the sarcoplasmic reticulum by the conformational coupling process, uh, which then activates the troponin and, and leads to power stroke cycling. So this is a nice summary figure of that. But what we want to talk about now is uh, explicitly highlighting the duration of an action potential that occurs on a muscle fiber relative to the duration of the contraction that it then triggers. So here I've drawn a double graph uh, on one y-axis. I have muscle fiber plasma membrane potential. So suppose we're, we're able to measure the membrane potential of this muscle fiber. And at the same time, we are also measuring the force developed by that muscle fiber. And this is just an, an individual muscle fiber. So we're not looking at a whole muscle, just a single cell. Right, so up here at the top graph, this is essentially looking at the electrical uh, event that occurs on the muscle fiber. With the force then, we're looking really at the ensuing mechanical or resulting mechanical event from that electrical event. And we're plotting these as a function of time in milliseconds. So the resting potential of a muscle fiber is right around the equilibrium potential for potassium at minus 90 millivolts. And let's suppose that the motor neuron induces or triggers an action potential, and so acetylcholine is released, and then that triggers an action potential on the muscle fiber. And I'm going to draw that just as a single spike here. So I'm compressing the time scale a bit. Uh, here's our action potential. that was triggered on the muscle fiber. And let's drop a dashed line down to indicate where that occurs when we are looking at the force. So on our force scale then, if the muscle's not electrically, if the muscle fiber's not electrically excited, then obviously it's not contracting, so there's zero force. Now, once the electrical excitation occurs, that action potential propagates rapidly out from the neuromuscular junction to either end of the muscle fiber. And there's a period in time where there's no mechanical event happening. So the force, no increase in force, even though the fiber has been electrically stimulated. And then you gradually see an increase and it reaches some peak and then tails off. So here's the contraction event. Now, the 
contractile response to a single action potential, the contraction essentially starts about here, and then it ends over here. And this contractile response to one action potential is what's known as a twitch contraction. Right, so this is a twitch contraction. Now, we know that the duration of an action potential on a muscle fiber is about two milliseconds, right? Very rapid activation of the sodium channels, inactivation followed by uh, activation of the potassium channels. That occurs extremely quickly. Now come down here to the twitch response from where force begins to be developed to where that force then ends This duration, it actually varies. And I'll give you a range. So the duration depends on the muscle fiber type. I haven't talked about this yet, but there are two basic different types of muscle fibers. There's what's called fast twitch fibers and there are slow twitch fibers. And this refers to the duration of the twitch response to a single action potential. Fast twitch, as the name implies, these twitches have a shorter duration. They occur more rapidly. Typ typical duration then is between 20 to 40 milliseconds. Whereas for a slow twitch fiber, this is on the order of 100 to 200 millisecond twitch duration. All right, so there is a difference depending upon the type of fiber, but importantly, the duration of that contractile response, whether it's a fast or a slow twitch fiber, is quite a bit longer than an action potential of two milliseconds. All right, so the twitch response is, is much longer. It's, it's slower. So coming back to the twitch, then we're going to divide this into two parts, roughly symmetrical. So as force is being developed, as it's increasing, then effectively from here to here is where the force is increasing. This is the period of active sarcomere shortening. Right, that's when 
the power stroke cycling is occurring because calcium has activated troponin, the actin sites are exposed. But once the peak response occurs, and so let's put up here, remember the delay, let's talk about this bit right here. Um, this period, this where nothing appears to be happening between when the axe potential occurred and when force starts being developed. This is what's called the latency period. And it, on average, it roughly lasts about five milliseconds where nothing is apparently happening on the muscle fiber. But this is the period where the ranidine receptor, dihydropyridine receptor, a conformational coupling process occurs. And SR calcium release occurs. And calcium diffusion into the sarcomeres. And calcium activation of troponin. So all of that is occurring during this latency period. It takes a little bit of time for that to happen. And these are all the things that have to happen before the power stroke cycling can occur to actually cause shortening, which then leads to the force development. Now, once the active shortening process occurs, so obviously when the calcium release happens, this is going to lead to high cytoplasmic calcium levels. And effectively, then, we can view the high calcium levels as occurring through approximately this time period. This is high concentration of cytoplasmic calcium occurs roughly during this time period. But then circuit activity is ongoing during this time and the calcium levels, they're high, but they are progressively falling during this active shortening period because of the reuptake process. And it reaches a critical point where the calcium levels decrease to the point where the troponin, uh, calcium dissociates from the troponin and the process shuts off. So this occurs uh, around the peak of the twitch response. And so let me put another bar out here. And this is the period of low calcium leading to troponin inactivation. So there is a progressive reduction in, a very rapid uh, reduction in the power stroke cycling that occurs as all the actin sites become blocked. So on the downside, as the force decreases, this is due to, or 
is considered the passive lengthening of the sarcomere. of all the sarcomeres. As the power stroke cycling process shuts off, right, and that occurs during the second half of the twitch. And during this passive lengthening process, there's no um, involvement of the actin and myosin in the lengthening of the sarcomeres. So in other words, lengthening does not involve myosin actin uh, interacting and power stroke cycling in the opposite direction, right? There's no interaction because all the actin sites are blocked. So what is it that causes passive lengthening of the sarcomere? is effectively caused by the recoil of the tendon which was stretched during the active shortening process. And this is the tendon, recoil of the tendon at the point of insertion of a muscle, right? That's the tendon that, that is actually stretched when a muscle contracts is the one that attaches to the insertion point. So imagine that that tendon is stretched, right? Because all the muscle fibers are pulling on the tendon, so it causes it to stretch. Well, once that active shortening stops, then there's no uh, force that's pulling on the tendon anymore, so it's going to recoil back to its original length. And as it does so, because all the muscle fibers are attached to the tendon, that's going to be the, the passive process that causes, that pulls on the muscle fibers and causes those sarcomeres to lengthen back to their original state. Right, so you can view the twitch, a single twitch contraction, as being uh, divided into an active shortening process and a passive lengthening process. But getting back to this force developed here, let's draw a dashed line at the peak here. So the question becomes, when this twitch contraction occurs, is this the maximum possible force that a muscle fiber can generate? A single fiber can generate And it turns out that the answer to that is no, it's not. And to understand why, let's talk about the 
determinants of force developed. by a single fiber. So the force developed by a single fiber, this depends on the extent of sarcomere shortening. The more all the sarcomeres can shorten within the fiber, the greater the force that that fiber can develop. But then think about the extent of sarcomere shortening. This in turn depends on the duration of power stroke cycling. within the sarcomeres, right? It's that power stroke cycling which is actually causing the shortening. And the more opportunity those myosin heads have to go through the power stroke cycle, right, the more rounds of those cycles that occur, the greater the shortening. Now, the duration of power stroke cycling in turn depends on Think about it, what's going to be uh, dictating the duration of that cycling? Well, we know that that cycling depends upon calcium binding to troponin, so this becomes dependent on the availability of a high concentration of cytoplasmic calcium. That's how calcium levels in the cytoplasm are linked to the force developed by a single muscle fiber. Now, we talked about the availability of cytoplasmic calcium is that this is availability is reduced by the sarcoplasmic endoplasmic reticulum calcium ATPase activity. Right, circa takes calcium back into the SR, and that's going to decrease that availability of calcium. So let me put actually change this to reduces. Circa activity reduces that availability of high calcium. Now on the other end. What increases that availability is SR calcium release. And specifically, more frequent SR calcium release. That in turn depends on the frequency of ranidine receptor activation, right? It's those ranidine receptors which have to be triggered to open. And the more frequently they open, the more frequent calcium is going to be released. This in turn is dictated by the action potential frequency 
on the muscle fiber. So right here, action potential frequency on the muscle fiber is a major determinant in dictating the force that that muscle fiber can develop through these interconnected events. Now we can illustrate this with a plot. I'll do another double plot here. So again, this is going to be the muscle fiber plasma membrane potential, and we're going to have muscle fiber force as a function of time. All right, this fiber starts at minus 90 millivolts. So let's draw an action potential occurring. And we'll drop the line down here again to indicate when that happened. Our force is initially zero. There's a latency period. And then once power stroke cycling occurs, we see an increase in force developed. Reaches some peak. But let's suppose at this point, the muscle fiber is electrically stimulated a second time because that can happen once the absolute refractory period of the muscle fiber is over. Right? It can be electrically stimulated again. And remember that this action potential triggers calcium release to drive the contraction process. But if another action potential occurs before the first contraction process is over, then we get additional calcium release. Now, as a result of that additional release, since all the calcium from the first action potential has not been taken back into the SR. The calcium from the second action potential is going to be additive with the first to allow for a longer period of troponin activation. So as the force begins to decline from the first twitch, and then more calcium is released, there's a small latency period, then you see continued shortening before the sarcomeres have fully relaxed, and it leads to a greater force of contraction in the second twitch. So this is what's called twitch summation. 
where the force, peak force of a second twitch is greater than the first. When the fiber is electrically stimulated, that just means it generates an action potential within a sufficiently short time period. cause um, additive effects on the cytoplasmic calcium levels. Right, if more calcium is released from a second action potential before all of the calcium from a first axe potential has been taken back up. That is how the calcium becomes additive. So it's really a summation of the calcium levels within the cell due to these two rapid calcium release events that allows for extended sarcomere shortening because it's going to take the circa a longer time to take in all that additional calcium. That allows for extended shortening and greater force developed. And that's twitch summation. Now, typically this will occur uh, when the time interval between these action potentials is um, around 100 to 60 milliseconds between these. That means that effectively it's somewhere between 10 to 15 hertz frequency on a muscle fiber will generate this uh, twitch summation response to lead to a greater force development. Now this is for slow twitch muscle. It, it would be different for a fast twitch muscle fiber. That interval is going to be quite a bit, the frequency has to be quite a bit higher to get twitch summation in a fast twitch fiber. Now, when we talk about twitch summation here, the summation that is occurring is in uh, the cytoplasmic calcium levels um, in this fiber leading to then force summation. Now, twitch summation is really just a special case of um, a more physiological uh, variation in force through more repeated stimulation of a muscle fiber. repeated being prolonged, so above about 15 hertz 
leads to either uh, what's called an unfused or fused tetanic contraction. All right, so what's the difference between these? Well, unfused, this refers to where the, uh, the peak of each twitch can be seen in the prolonged contraction. Whereas a fused tetanic contraction, this is a smooth contraction where the individual uh, peaks of each twitch cannot be seen. It just looks like a single smooth contraction. Give you an example here. Oops. Try that again. Let's suppose then that, again, this is going to be plasma membrane potential and force. Suppose that a fiber is stimulated more than twice at a critical frequency. Here's our repeated stimulation. And for an unfused tetanus, this frequency is generally going to be on the order of between 15, somewhere 15 to 50 hertz. That's the frequency of action potentials generated here. Now, if we look at the force in this case, we have a little latency period. Force develops. Then another action potential occurs. And so now we start to see an increase in force. But then another one occurs. And it goes up again. And you finally reach a peak where the force gets no larger. So this would be a rough example of what an unfused tetanic contraction looks like. 
it's unfused because you can still discern the individual peaks of each twitch from each action potential that occurred, right? Each individual peak is still identifiable. But this is a single contraction event. Even though you can see the individual twitches, since the force never returns back to resting, it, this is a single unfused titanic contraction. And anywhere it, with a frequency range between 15 and 50 hertz, you see this. Now, clearly, the force developed here, right? Here's the peak force from this unfused tetanus. If we come back over here, that force is much greater than a single twitch force, which is down here. So force developed by a single fiber can vary depending upon the frequency of stimulation. That's going to allow for greater Sarcomere shortening and therefore greater force developed. Now a fused tetanus, I won't draw this, but I will bring in a figure from the book for this. Uh, so here is All right, this is showing the relationship between the duration of an action potential and the duration of the contraction response. So this is figure 813 in the book on page 262. And then I'll bring in this figure. which illustrates a few twitch summation and a fused tetanus. So this is actually figure 819. On page 267. Illustrating how action potential frequency affects the force developed. So in example C here, they're showing a fused tetanus where the muscle fiber is stimulated at such a high frequency that the individual peaks of a twitch can no longer be seen. And so you just see one smooth, large increase. And this leads to uh, maximum possible force. which is called a maximum titanic contraction. And that force can be anywhere from five to 10 times greater than the force developed by a single twitch. Uh, this particular figure is only showing a threefold greater force, so that would not be a maximum possible force. As I said, it's typically five to 10 times greater than a twitch force. 
And the frequency required for this titanic con uh, unfused titanic contraction is greater than 50 hertz. Right. So that's how variations in force can be accomplished. And this is a critical mechanism that allows for differences in force to be developed. And the last thing I'll just quickly mention is that twitches, twitch contractions don't normally happen physiologically, if you think about them, right? They're, they're only like 100 milliseconds long. That's not enough to move something very far, right? A tenth of a, milli, a, tenth of a second long contraction isn't going to do much. Most contractions in the body are, in fact, unfused tetanic contractions that involve uh, frequencies of stimulations between 15 and 50, 15 and 50 hertz on the muscle fiber. It's only at very maximal contractions do fused tetanic contractions occur. All right, so we'll end uh, this lecture here, and we'll finish up chapter eight next time, and then we're going to move on to chapter nine and cardiac physiology.